Welcome to the Iceman, a podcast sponsored by Tuned Up Custom Rods. Welcome back, everybody. We're back here in the studio, and today we thought we would do something just a little bit different. We've been talking to guests and talking to each other, and and uh, we started to realize, actually, with the help of our producer, that uh, a lot of the stuff we're talking about is maybe kind of second nature lingo to us, but to people who aren't necessarily super super versed in this sport or people who don't uh, live and breathe it, I suppose, the same way that we do, might... Uh, May not know what we're talking about. No, I, I think I think people are uh, people are getting the impression that they need to know all the lingo right away. So we're going to kind of break some of this stuff down. Um, but before this, I kind of want to talk about that. You know, hunting season's coming up, and I actually had an opportunity to go hunting uh, last week on a game farm. Did you? Yeah, I've never was, been on a game farm. Game farm hunting is is a little bit more shooting than hunting. Is it? Um, is it like uh, fishing a private lake? Yeah, it's like fishing in a pond, uh, but. I still did realize how out of shape I was walking <laughs> through sub gum that, you know, waist high. It was, uh, if you ever get to the point where you're doing a physical activity like hunting and you realize that you're like so out of breath, you can't like breathe at all. Yeah. That's where I was. That's where you, you got yeah. to that point. I went to that point. I was like, wow, this is, they terrible. don't have caddies for you out there. No, no this was carts? like legit. You actually had to walk and not just like drive around in a golf cart and shoot birds. Where'd you go? Uh, we went to a, I believe it was like Sand Creek up in St. Cloud. Oh, yeah. Um, but it was a very, very nice facility, beautiful. Um, we shot a few birds. It was a, it was a kind of a corporate trip. It was a fundraiser. Um, very good. It was for the REACH program. Um, but very good, very good time. Very good people out how there. Do, how does it work? Like, So if I'm a guy and I just want to go shoot some birds... I don't have any land. How do I? How does a game farm work? You pay per bird. Usually or? you pay per bird, you know, and it's it's not terrible. I mean, but it's a good experience for like kids and stuff trying to get out and not, you know, trudge through the woods for a day and a half just to see one bird. I mean, you actually see birds and and shoot them, but you pay for the bird. They release them in the in the you know CRP or whatever they they kind of manage it so you can walk. What CRP mean? I. Remember, we're dumb, we're dumbing it down this oh, week. Oh, that's right. I don't know what CRP means. That's just what it's... Isn't it crop retention program or yeah. something like that? So they leave standing corn. They leave sub gum. But they, I guess they, they what they do with the pheasants, they dizzy them up, throw them up. And like literally, <laughs> I, and I saw them because they, they kind of hold them underneath and, 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 and make them dizzy to kind of turn them upside down, throw them in the, the corn, and then they should get up and fly. That's awesome. Break one leg, break one wing. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Stake them down to the ground. It's not like that. It's not like that. But it's they it, actually were sitting next to a, a grill that was already heated up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pre-plucked. Kind of. <laughs> Do they provide the dogs? Uh, they did on this trip. Yeah, I know you can bring your own dogs out there, and it's a good as far as training a dog. I know it works really well because you're not trudging through South Dakota or something searching for birds. It's the dogs get, you know, a lot of exposure to it. So it, it's, it was a good time. While you were doing that, I was doing sporting clays. I did sporting clays this week. I haven't shot my shotgun in forever. You know, you fixed yeah. my shotgun. Yeah. We went out to the Metro Gun Club, a buddy of mine and I, to do sporting clays, and we were not good at it. Sporting clays is a lot harder than it looks. The one that pissed me off was there was one where it shoots it in a big arc, right? And it just is very slow 
and very steep arc, and it, the the bird is facing you the entire time. Couldn't hit it. Those are the hardest shot. Actually, the hardest shots that we had, we had birds that would get up behind. It was it was extremely windy when I went. It was like thirty mile an hour winds the whole day. The birds would get up behind us and fly towards us. So you'd have to oh, yeah. wait while they go over the top of your head, and it was impossible to shoot them because they're flying away from you. Yeah. And it seems it doesn't matter how many times I shoot, they still never fall when I they're flying away from me. Yeah, it was it was a humbling experience because I used to be pretty decent at trapping. Nope, not that time. That's all right. It's it, it it's a practice type sport. I need to do some. Are pheasant fowl? Uh, it'd be upland game technically. Oh. Fowl is like du- I, duck. Duck. I've never. I've grouse hunted, but I've never done any more than that. Grouse hunting is a whole different experience in Minnesota. It's yeah, most you're in the woods. Yeah, you're 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 walking through usually like break lines and stuff where it transitions from one type of forest to the other, and they always love to just sit on the edge of that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, that sounds fun. Maybe the Iceman should take a trip to. I think that's I think that's a good idea. Next time remote, just have some gunshots going off in the background. Absolutely. But we what we want to talk to people about kind of is breaking down some of the terminology people use um, and kind of there's a lot of coined terms that we all use that I think people don't quite understand. So when on our last episode we had Matt Klugin and we were talking with him about his use of the panoptics or yeah. the live scope. And well, now I just saw that Hummingbird released their version, and the, and what the ice fishing industry is, it's always ever evolving. So mm-hmm. as one company releases something cool, another company is going to release something cool or something like it yeah. very soon. And Hummingbird just released their 360 mega yeah, for ice. Yeah, that I saw that on on Brad Hawthorne's Instagram page this morning, and it looked really neat. Yeah. The it's it's it connects to your regular machine, your regular. Th- Actually, what do you need? You need the you need Helix a, eight you, or above. Oh, you can't use a seven with Mega. No, okay. it has to be the eight. It said eight, nine, and ten. I don't know. Eight Pro- and probably nine, yeah. nine, ten, eleven, or nine. Yeah, you guys 10, aren't 12. being technical at all right now. <laughs> sorry, yeah, sorry, we're still talking to ourselves, I guess. <laughs> okay, so, so let's back it up. So when you when we talk about ice fishing and we talk about the electronics that we use. Right, so there's yes. three main categories, as far as I can tell. There's a flasher, which we'll we'll break it down even further. Is, yeah. is there's basically Vexlar flashers, Markham flashers, which are a rotary analog unit. Yeah, and Hummingbird makes a flasher. Yes, the ice thirties, the ice thirty fives, fifty fives, whatever. So a, a flasher is it's a circular display, and it uses. In the newer ones use LEDs. The older ones use little little spinning brushes that would light up, and they would show uh, basically just a, a cross section of what's going on underneath the ice um, in an angle. And you would you put down you put down your transducer, and the transducer is a puck shaped um, sensor, and that it hangs down below the ice. If you don't put it below the ice, it doesn't work. So it's got to go low enough so it's below the ice, and then that shoots off the the basically radar straight down the hole, but it goes out at an angle as it's going down. And it's also kind of a, a circle. Think of it as like a flashlight. So when yeah. people talk about yeah, like yeah, yeah. a cone angle, um, and I know this this question comes up a lot to me is when you know Vexar's got a twelve degree cone angle. Mm-hmm. Okay, when you shine that cone angle, 
figure it's 12 degrees down to the bottom. Yeah. So the deeper you go, the bigger your pattern is, but also kind of the weaker the flashlight is. Mm-hmm. If that, And that's why you have to turn up your gain. So if you yeah. just... And if you have a wider cone angle, it's better for shallow. Yep. And if you, but if you shine a wider one deeper, it, it has less brightness. It's like a flood flashlight versus a, a beam flashlight. Yeah, and that can also help with interference a ton. Um, use a smaller, narrow cone like a nine degree when you're fishing next to your buddy. Mm-hmm. You guys aren't seeing. You, you know, you're not shining two flashlights that over intersect and overlap. Yeah. Your both beams are kind of, you know separate so with me i run a i run a vexlar and mine's at 12 degree angle so when i'm sitting in 10 feet of ice well let's make it easy if i'm sitting in 30 10, feet, 10 of feet of ice that you... 10 feet of ice 10 feet of water if i'm <laughs> sorry. sitting in sorry if i'm sitting in 30 feet of ice the cone angle 30 feet of ice now it's 30 oh, feet of water come, come on. on i'm just kidding <laughs> viewers <laughs> 30 feet of water if i'm sitting in 30 feet of water the the it is one, th- the cone angle acts, works to be about one third of the depth. So if it's 30 feet of water at the, at the very bottom of the lake, I'm measuring a cone with a diameter of about 10 feet. So that's, that's the amount of, of bottom I can see. So that's a pretty big area. Yeah. You know, and, and you, you, but if you look at like a lake, it's a tiny little pinpoint area you're looking at yeah so if you want to see a whole lake and you don't know what it looks like you have to drill a lot of holes so that's the flasher is not good for viewing a lot of area yeah it i mean it's work to figure out a lake yes oh absolutely you still can figure out a lake pretty well i mean just by general topography and Mm -hmm. and stuff like that but i guess then so after flasher then i I have a flasher question yeah okay so you got that ten feet of view down down below you, right? Yep. yep. Uh, imagine your your bait is right in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. You see a fish on that. Can you tell where the fish is compared to your bait within that ten foot ring? So yeah, that's a good question. So when you when you see the colors on a flasher, so like I run an FLX twenty eight. That's the model Vexlar I use, and that has five colors that it, that it can choose from. Okay, and those colors all represent a a, a signal strength. So when you see a mark on your Vexlar screen, it is showing you how strong of a return goes back up to that puck, back up to your transducer. So for me, the way mine is set is white is the strongest return, and it goes to very light blue is the weakest return. So would that be if it's white, it's closer to being directly underneath your transducer, and if it's blue, it's further away from the... Correct. the The, The more centered it is in the transducer cone... In that in that twelve degrees, the the brighter it is, and with that being said, if it's very very large, the the band, you know, because it's it's showing you that circular display, and so the white piece itself could be a very narrow white bit, or it could be wider, and the wider it is, it also could give you an indication of its size. But I personally have found that that some very large fish don't look very big on a transducer and some very small fish look big. So it's, it, it, it is kind of gives you an idea of the size of the fish, but really more of what it does is it tells you how close it is to your actual bait. And what, what's your bait going to look like? So the bait is depending on what you're fishing for. So if you're crappie fishing and you're using a a tiny tungsten jig, that's going to look like a very weak single signal. I want to have my, I want my signal of my bait to be enough that I can see it, but not enough that I think it's a fish. 
So I want it to be I want it to be a pretty weak return. You you want it to be the thinnest line you possibly can make it yeah. while still seeing it all the time. And yep. that's and for me, what is your fishing with kind of a traditional unit, some of the jigging style wraps or the swimming baits when mm-hmm. you're jigging up and down, they're going in and out of that cone. Yeah. Which or spoons, um, which people don't realize when spoons flutter down and and up, they can you know, they can shoot 10, 15 feet to the side when yeah. you're dropping them down, and you won't see it for a second, so you almost have to be patient before it comes back And that threw me for hole. a big loop when I first, when I got my first flasher. My first flasher was an FLX-18, so that one only has three colors. Yeah. It's only red, yellow, and green. And that and, was the first flasher, I, well, first flasher I truly got to know yeah. was an FL-18, and, and that has Zoom. Did I say FLX? Yeah, you F- said yeah, FLX. FL-18. But the FL-18 is kind of, I mean, it's it's a workhorse. It's a the... bulletproof. It's been around forever. It will be around forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways. That's, that's what I use, and I can tell you, if I can use it, anyone can use it. Yeah. But what I was going to say is that tripped me up when we would go fishing on Red Lake because we'd be in a house, and we'd be sitting in nine feet of water, and when we would, with, with ice on top, with ice on top, we'd be sitting. We'd be sitting in nine or ten feet because it's quite a shallow lake. And you would drop. I I used. I I love rattling flyer spoons up on Red Lake. And you'd drop it down the hole, and it would disappear. And it would drive me bonkers because I'm like, I know that this thing is set big enough where I should be able to see it, but I in my mind I could not picture the fact that that flutter spoon is literally floating. It's it's gliding out from. From my from my direct hole. Well, it's like a paper airplane, though. Yeah, I, mean, I had no it, clue. If it's you know, you think about it, you're, you're dropping it down. It's it's flying off mm-hmm. center from that cone. You figure it's that flashlight. That's all you can see is that cone and that angle. And if it gets out of that, it's gone. And I didn't realize what it was what was happening until I watched an episode of of Lindy's Fish Ed with uh, John Thielen, and he had an underwater shot of what the rattling flyer spoon does and how it, how much it arcs out and how, when it arcs out, it passes out of that degree of cone and you can't see it until it pendulums back. Yeah. Well, and that's what, like when, when I was starting to get into ice fishing, we, those spoons didn't exist, but it was nils mm-hmm. and they were basically a jigging wrap, but you jig them two, three times and then you jig them one, once hard to get them out of the cone and they would, you know, they'd swim six, eight feet out and then circle back in and you would lose them all the time, which was, it was kind of frustrating because a lot of fish you'd, you'd smoke as it, it like just came back into the cone. So you get a bite and you wouldn't even see your lure disappear. Yeah. So the, the flasher style, the circular flasher style is, is been around for decades. Yeah. And it's probably will be around for decades, but now there's been a lot of new innovation in, in, in terms of what you can use for ice electronics. So probably the next thing would be sonar, a sonar view of some sort. Yeah, so we're, I would think LX7s are under that mark yeah, LX7, which is a digital um, unit, and then it would be Hummingbird, Lowrance. And when we talk Hummingbird, we're talking Hummingbird, like the Helix. Like the Helix series. Yep. I know there's a lot of older series that people still use, but the Helix really, I mean, in my mind, it took off last year um, big time. Uh, And that's just, that's the exact head unit that you use in your boat. Yeah. So for me, I was able to take my head unit off my boat, which had my GPS points and put it on an ice unit and it was all ready to go 
right there. And the ice unit, when you put it on an ice unit, the things that you need is you need a battery mm-hmm. and you need a transducer. Yeah, and the trans it comes in a kit. You can mount them on every. You know, I used a an existing case that I had, um, but it worked. It works really well. So then, when you put the when you when you go out with a sonar style um, uh, ice kit, ice trans not a, it's not a flasher, but a sonar style yeah ice electronics, and you drop your bait down, you're not getting a circular return. You you can you, they you, have that you, option. You can so they. But traditionally, the sonar looks like a two-dimensional uh, flat screen that shows history. So yes. your, your, when you drop down, your bait is on the far right side of the screen. And it's a scrolling screen. It's a scrolling just, screen. Just like a, you know, any graph that people use in the summertime. Yeah. But what the big thing is, fish do not show up as hooks at all. No, they look like just flat lines. They're just flat lines. They, they show up. Almost, they look like a thin little piece of pencil lead. Yeah, I mean, they, they and there's no arcs. There's not much to them unless they're actually moving. Um, that history for me is really important over a flasher, because take for example lake trout fishing. Lake trout fishing is still the thing that it baffles me how fast a lake trout can move in the winter. But you'll be jigging, you'll feel a little bump, and then you're like, what, what, what just happened? And you look down, and there's you see this giant swipe. And it almost looks like a somebody took a Nike swoosh and made a little mark on your graph because you just see a little glimpse. And that was a Laker that just flew in, nabbed that bait, and then flew out of your cone because it's just a split second. With a flasher, you're, miss you, you're missing it every time. And if you're fishing like a, a really finicky bite and you're getting a lot of looks, you, you're seeing a lot of marks on a traditional flasher, a lot of a lot of lines coming up and coming to your bait and then going away, and you don't know why. On a sonar unit, you can watch, you can go back and you can see your jigging cadence. You can see what got the fish to come in and look. You have a, a, mi- you a can, mini history table yeah. of what, what just happened. And you can see, you know, did I do something that made them go away? Or what what is it that I'm doing that's making them come back? So that history gives gives you some gives you some detail that you can work from. I would assume also if you're working with a little bit of depth, you can get up to where you got that mark and keep your keep your bait closer yeah. closer to the level that they were at at that time yeah, to bring you, them back in. Exactly. If you see a fish, if you see a mark that's not on the bottom, if it's up in the column somewhere, you can position your bait and jig in that particular zone and, uh, and hopefully attract more fish that might be suspended in that same spot. Do you guys find that most fish fish are going to be close to the bottom or about a foot off the bottom or is it, it does it does it matter just... it's all over for me i mean I, I think fishing with the the graph style versus the flasher style getting that little bit of history i mean you see crappies that fly in you know five feet below the ice and 30 feet of water and i would have i would have thought that would have been just clutter on mm-hmm. a flasher whereas a graph it's like you can actually see the individual lines come through get a little stronger, and then fade back away. And you can see the whole history, even if it's only a couple seconds. As long as you glance at it once in a while, you'll see that history. Yeah. Uh, for To answer the question, I I generally am going to be focused on the on the bottom of the, the lake first. That's where I'm, I'm going to be spending most of my energy. The flasher that I use has a zoom mode, so you can zoom in and just see the bottom six feet on one side of the circle and then see the whole column on the other side of the circle. And I like that. I like to be able to concentrate on the bottom six feet. 
But if I'm crappie fishing, very often the fish are not on the bottom. So what I do, and and John, you and I are have a little different philosophy here. See, I I much prefer a flasher. I much prefer a circle display. Yeah, and that's I mean, and everybody should know that they're very different units, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a very different style of fishing. Yeah. And what I what I do is so if I'm if I know I'm in a spot where there's crappie, if I'm there to crappie fish, and I know that my settings are are set so that I'm not going to pick up a bunch of clutter, then I'll drop my bait down and I'll go right to the bottom. And if I get a fish to move, if I see a, a mark come off the bottom, great, I'll fish that mark. But if I see any mark anywhere in the water column that wasn't there before, I immediately reel up to that mark. Because when I'm crappie fishing, I always want to target the highest fish first. The well, fish in most situations, mm-hmm. those are the active feeders. They're up there, they're eating, and a lot of times they're bigger. They're separated from the group for whatever reason. So I jump up to those, those aggressive ones first, and usually I, I can get a bite. If those ones, if I reel up quick and the, the mark goes away, then I drop back down to the bottom. Yeah, because lots of times it's a fish that was not interested, or yeah. it's a perch, or a bait fish, else, or yep. just, I mean, there's, sometimes there's clutter, too. Yeah. Um, if I'm walleye fishing, I'm on the bottom. Yeah. I'm close to the bottom. Walleye is generally what I've found is on the bottom, they're, they're within a foot of the bottom, if not dragging their bellies on the bottom. The only place I've fished suspended walleyes is on Winnipeg. And That's because they're gigantic. And you, you catch fish eight inches under the, under the ice. You've got four feet of ice up there and they, they roam and zoom and they, they don't care. They're everywhere. The only fish that I've ever seen really suspended, kind of like what you're saying is uh, fishing like rainbow trout in the wintertime. They will actually ride higher than the transducer (laughs) and that can throw you, like they'll, they'll run where their backs are almost touching the top of the ice. Yeah. And if your transducer's down, you know, couple inches like it should be we should I'll, I'll pause for a second and make sure that your transducer puck is flat and level otherwise yeah. your life will be very very hard to fish any any of these units when you hang it down the hole it's got to be lower than the ice lower than the bottom of the ice and it has to hang level yeah i think a lot of people think they're below the ice but they'll actually have just a little bit of a slight angle yeah and if you shine an angle you figure that flashlight if you tilt it to the side and it's 12 feet all of a sudden it's 13 feet now and you're shining it at a weird angle and you're and every turn is going to be weird it's going to be yeah, it's going to be irregular that that can throw you off pretty bad yeah now i know you guys um can't describe every single piece of electronics that's out there but let's just say like the average joe goes to cabela's drops 500 bucks on a nice vexlar and has no idea how to set up, set up any of the knobs, any of the settings. What you know, the one X, two X, three X, four X, auto zoom, low power, high power. What, what what do you guys want to be using for those settings generally? So, so for, for my my number one advice would be watch a YouTube video. Everything that you ever wanted to know about a Vexlar or a Flasher or a Hummingbird or a Markham is on YouTube. I watched hundreds of hours of YouTube videos on it. But if, you, if you're not going to do that, what, what you want to do for setting up depth, so let's talk about Vexlar because that's kind of what you're thinking. So on the depth dial on a Vexlar, like an FL18, you've got the 1X, the 2X, the 3X, and so on. And that's setting your zoom setting. So if you're fishing in water that's 10 feet or less... Well, let you, me ask you this. 
You go to a lake, you have no idea what the depth is. You don't have a chart. You've never been there before. You don't know anything about the lake. Okay. Do you drop a line down and see how far down it goes before you set make no. your settings? No. I no, I put my I put my Vexlar down and I turn it on 1x. And then if I look at 1x and on my transdu on my flasher I don't see bottom anywhere, then I turn it to 2x. And I and if I don't see bottom anywhere there, I turn it to 3x. So it'll You're, never see the bottom if it's if it's too sh- if it's too deep. Yeah. So one X means it's shining ten feet deep. It's going to see ten feet down in the water column. Two X means it's going to show t- twenty feet deep, and three X is thirty feet. You're, you're going to be hard-pressed to be ice fishing on a lake that's more than 30 feet deep unless you're in a weird hole on some random lake or you're on, on a lake that you already know is deep. Now, I had a situation in Ontario this past year where we were fishing on a cliff edge. Mm-hmm. So what the transducer, this is one of the, what I don't really like about transducers is when it shows, say it's 60 feet deep, but there's your split in between 60-foot ledge and 120-foot ledge, it will only show you 60 feet because it'll return at the first signal it hits in that cone. Yeah. So your other side is 120 feet. I caught a fish off graph. Basically, I kept dropping my jig down, and it. I was in 120 roughly, but the first ledge that my transducer cone caught was at 60. Mm-hmm. So there's this big gray area that there are there's no way i could have my transducer sit in it but it was basically a blank area for that so there's some hidden things if you're fishing very steep breaks that you know you kind of have to watch out for and i mean that's going to be a a very unusual scenario yes oh no i mean most minnesota lakes are pretty flat i mean we don't have structure there might be some rock there might be some weeds you're probably not going to be ice fishing much more than 30 feet for 30 feet deep. Well, we should we should talk a little bit about like how to identify rocks. I mean, if you're getting a very strong mm-hmm. return and we're we're talking about like your bottom I guess the colors of your bottom. Yeah. So, on a Vexlar, when you look at the return, it's is it thin is it thinner means hard? Thin, usually thin bold lines like yeah. if you have white as your top color, if it's a thin white line, it would be a rock or a very very a hard, hard bottom. bottom. And if it's if the it, this is this will be very hard to visualize just through words, but if you look at an image of a Vexlar, you know what I'll do? When I post this episode, I'll put a picture on Instagram of of, of Vexlar return and just try to explain. Yeah, I mean, so, I just I, we we think this information is yeah. helpful to people. <clears throat> so it'll be uh, a, a a softer bottom, like a, a mud or a sand bottom, is going to be a wider bottom line, and it will be usually a darker color. And a hard bottom like rock or gravel is going to be a thinner, stronger colored line. And if you can find that transition line, that's gold. You yeah. know, if you can I mean, find where it tra- goes from hard to soft, that's where the fish are going to settle. Transition lines are, are still key. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where a lot of fish hang out because it's, it's like anything, any transition line. Even I think all creatures sit around transition lines. You look at, yeah. you know, how many, how many of us live near a lake or a river? Well, we all do. Yeah. Not many people live in the middle of South Dakota and just a farm field. I mean, yeah. there are people, but it's not. The populations are on the coast. They're around everything. Same they're around as where pe- things change. Yep. Same as where, you know, fish sit. They always hang around that transition period, weeds and stuff. Now, weeds on a flasher, for me, are hard to watch because it looks like clutter. On like a Markham or a hummingbird screen, I think it's a little easier because they're lines but they never change and they never move Mm -hmm. Um, 
so it's a little easier for me to see and watch. Yeah. I, I don't fish in weeds very often, but I agree. Weeds can be challenging because if you're bottom focused, they they move a lot and you think that you're getting marks flicking in and out. Um, yeah, that, that, that is a challenge. Um, I guess I'm going to circle back one more time to time your question. So when I go out on the ice and I put my flasher down, the first, the, the way that I have it set is the way that I have it set 99% of the times I fish. I have the zoom turned on auto. So on my, on the FLX 28, and I think all the FLX series does this, it'll automatically, it'll autom- automatically give you the best bottom number. So you don't have to dial dial 1x, 2x, 3x. It just does it. It just automatically detects the bottom. And then I always have my auto zoom set for six feet. So the bottom six feet are are zoomed on the right-hand side. And what about uh, the power setting? I leave my sensitivity turned to zero. I have my gain turned all the way down. But there's like... There's two ons. There's like a low power on and there's like a... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So low power, it would be if you're in very, very shallow water... Or if you're in weeds, if you're in very shallow water uh, and you have a, if you have it on high power, it's basically like the flashlight analogy. It'd be like having a re- really, really bright light shining against a wall that you're very close to. It, it, it can be, it can be damaging to what you're trying to see versus shining a slightly lower powered light on that wall would give you more detail. Yeah. It, it's, it's the, the flashlight is the best analogy mm-hmm. ever, you know, cause it's always a little bit of a cone. Um, and I think we should probably touch on the the newest wave of stuff. Yeah, the live scope, panoptics, and hummingbird. Yep. Um, for me, I haven't I haven't jumped into this because a they're very big. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'd like to be as light as possible, and b they're they're expensive, super expensive. I mean, for the average guy, you know, panoptics by the time you're done is a couple thousand bucks. Yeah. Depends on what, you know, obviously what batteries and what head mm. units you use, but even the Hummingbird one, um, that's a thousand dollars for the transducer. Even the display on those are big. Yes. Because it's, you're getting so much detail that you need a big screen to, to interpret it. And it's not, if you're hole hopping or something, it's not efficient. No, not at all. And if you're going to use it as your primary fish catching, like fish catching machine, they, they lag. So, yes. and by lag, when we say lag, that means that if you see, if you're dropping your bait down the hole, your, it's your bait drop rate is out of sync with your video, with your return, with what's showing on the screen. And I think live scope is a little better now. It's, it is, but it's still laggy. I fished with live scope. Yeah. You, it's, you, it's still a lag. And a lag is very hard for me. It's very hard for my brain to understand it because when i jig i want to see my jig move up well it's like watching a video where the where the sync where the lips and the and the words aren't in sync yeah it's like a a terrible chinese ninja film it's it's very hard (laughs) to concentrate on um but the the incredible power of a a real-time view like a live scope gives you is you can see fish moving yeah, you and can you see, can, and you can watch it. It's more like a video. Well, and also you're going to identify species. Yes, um, I know Clayton Schick. I watch his video still. Um, he did a lot with live scope and lake trout, and he would pick and choose. He would see a giant lake trout, and it. If you ever watch his video, it's pretty incredible to watch a lake trout turn in live. Like it's almost like a, it's like a, 
ultrasound. You can that, see the fins. You, you can, can see, see everything. everything. And it's actually a little creepy because you saw that big fish turn. It does look and, a lot like a 3D ultrasound. Yeah. That's, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. And if if you have kids, I mean, it's it's a pretty amazing thing. It'd be, it's, on, it's all live. Yeah. But you have to decide where to point it. So it, a live scope, you point it in a direction and then it goes whatever 100 degrees or whatever from that direction. And it doesn't point necessarily down. It points more out. Yeah. It's like a... A side imaging. It's yeah. it's pointing. It's it's like a picture in front of you, mm-hmm. and you can turn it and stuff. But like a, is it like a reverse periscope? Basically, you put it down and you point it out. Yes. Yes. Perfect. Perfect, Perfect analogy. analogy. <laughs> yes, a reverse periscope, and and it and kind of like a floodlight type of vi- vision. What's your uh, What's your range? Uh, a couple hundred feet, I think. Uh, you can set it. The closer range you have, the more detail you get. I think like when I was just out in my boat with or in the boat with a friend of mine, he has a live scope and we were crappie fishing. And I think it was shining maybe 70 feet, 80 feet, something like that. But is is it, is, is it hard in the boat? Because it's always, it's moving. I mean, because so, I, I think ice as far as like, for me, like using a sonar or a flasher or anything during the winter is so much easier because it's basically you're on a level playing field that doesn't, well, it shouldn't move, but it really doesn't move when you're out there. The The live scope was less affected by the waves than, say, a hummingbird, or I'm sorry, than, say, a, a Vexlar's transducer would be. Yes. It stayed more stable. But the amount of equipment that that this, that this my friend had in his boat to operate this was staggering. He had, and he and he's, a, he's a person who likes to have equipment. I mean, he wants to have... You know, it's kind of like a hobby. It's like a thing to tinker with. So there, um, but he had probably seven cables to connect this to different head units and different transducers. It, yeah, it's not, people don't, when you get into it, it's a it's a pretty big rabbit hole. But anyway. it was pretty neat because he was driving the boat and he had his uh, council mounted um, Garmin display, right? And then he had that uh ethernet hooked up to another garmin display that was connected to basically a shuttle with a battery that i had in front of me so we both had the same view oh that's kind of cool it was pretty neat so like i was like starship enterprises yeah i was sitting in a different side of the boat and i could i had my own monitor to watch but it was the same screen it was the same view we were both seeing the same thing right and so we were both jigging off the side of the boat and he was actually using a bullwhip he was because it was. I mean, you're sitting right jigging, well, vertical and jigging. Late fall. Yeah. I mean, fish are kind of like in that midwinter pattern. Mm-hmm. They're all in the basin and they're and just free roaming. So we could both see our jigs go down. And I think you should explain that a bullwhip is an ice rod. Yeah, right? I'm sorry. He was he was fishing with an ice fishing rod, which I've done before. It's actually kind of fun to ice fish off the side of a boat. Well, you I mean I would love to have like Dave Gens's boat. <laughs> you could just ice fish 24 yeah. seven. Yeah. All year long. Um, so anyways, the, the amount of components that are required for a technology like that is, is remarkable and it's an investment. And for me personally, I don't see that as being enough of a game changer to pull the trigger. But also think about this. I mean, that when that technology first came out a couple of years ago, it was really expensive. Well, I mean, and now really, really expensive. It's, it's come down. I mean, a thousand dollars is still a lot of money, but it's come down tremendously. I mean, mm-hmm. this could be one of those things where, I mean, not to knock the flashers, but they could die off 
as this becomes a little bit more mobile. I know Possibly. the Hummingbird one looks a little bit more user-friendly as far as size, but they're, you know, what people don't realize, it's it's another, you know, probably 10 pounds to carry out there. What I liked a lot about the Hummingbird one that I just mentioned seeing on the, on the Instagram story was that it would not be my dedicated flasher. Yeah, it would be in a like a auxiliary so, unit. Yeah, so the Hummingbird, the the difference between Live Scope and this Hummingbird 360 is the Live Scope shoots uh, an angled photo like that underground paris or underwater periscope, where the Hummingbird 360 is more like um, like a security camera. You drop it down and it it revolves. It's it's more like a radar. Actually, is probably the better way to say it, and it shoots this 360 degree radar image. And as it's shooting it, it does it does pick up fish, and you can see fish movement, but it's not as real time as live scope is. But what it can do is similar to what side scan can do in your boat, where it can show you that there's a pile of rocks, seventy feet in front of you, and you might not. I mean, it would have taken a hundred holes to find that pile of rocks. And see, I think what a lot of this technology is doing is it's cutting down the amount of time spent gridding out a spot mm-hmm. and when I always talk about gridding out a spot um, think of it as like a checkerboard and you drill holes each hole is going to have some a different thing in it mm-hmm. you know whether it's a little rock pile or or weed pile or something like that and you grid it out and you kind of have to kind of think about it like that and do it strategically because if you just randomly drill holes you're not going to get anywhere yeah yeah. So when you're looking at your screen, are you seeing literal rocks or is it just a return, like a radar return or what, what exactly are you seeing? So, um, and you can take some screenshots of this as well and just throw absolutely, that up on Instagram. Absolutely. I definitely will. Yeah. I'll grab the one that, that Brad Hawthorne had on his, or I think it's just the hummingbird commercial picture. But if you, if you are in a boat and you have a real dialed in side scan or a real dialed in down imaging, when you drive over something that is in the bottom, it looks like what it is like if you drive over a sunken boat it looks like a boat it's all monochromatic it's not in color yeah, but it look it, it's you can definitely see the shape yes it's it's amazing, amazing what you can see the detail is I, it is it affected by the water clarity at all not that i ever have noticed it would be affected by debris in the water like in the fall if there's a bunch of leaves and whatnot floating around or if there was a big mayfly hatch it might get clouded by that but I don't think it's affected by by muddy or stained water, unless it's, you know, like soup. I suppose. I I, I haven't I haven't experienced it enough, but I don't think it would be. the 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 rocks look like boulders. They look like and and when you see them, you can tell that you're looking the direction you're looking because the front of the boulder, the the part that's closest to the to the spinning head is bright. Look, think the, of it like a flashlight. It's going to shine on the front of yeah. that reflected and object. The back first. of it looks like a shadow. So it does. It shows a three dimensional view of it. It's it's. It looked really neat, in my opinion. So you, you imagine saying, the guys developing that stuff? Like no. holy smokes! Look so, at what we can see. Just magic. You, yeah, you're I mean, a magician. Or stuff. I mean, guys with IQs of a billion. More, more <laughs> IQs of more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you said that. Uh, you thought that it could possibly make like the traditional flasher go obsolete. I was reading a, a, a post on in-depth outdoors forum that I thought was hilarious. It asked, is Vexlar going to be the new Blackberry? 
I love Blackberries though. Remember how easy it was to email on a Blackberry? Yeah. yeah. The greatest and you had a full keyboard. The so, only thing I wouldn't mistype on because you could it was a tactile feel. Blackberries is purpose built, right? Yeah. It, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. And I thought that was a an interesting comparison because you know the 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 Vexlar technology is the same that it's been since what nineteen seventies. Yeah, and but, it, it's it's evolved a little bit, they've but made it, the it's same, become more efficient. It's quieter. It's the same base, base concept. Yeah. But there's also the argument is, you know, is a fishing rod or a fishing reel going to evolve? They're basically the same things that we've seen mm-hmm. for decades. And so then as that thread, if any of you have read the thread, it was very interesting. But the, the comparison started to, to change and say that Vexlar isn't the new Blackberry. It's the new Nokia. Because the, the brick phone, the phone that you that you didn't matter what you did to it, it's going to work. That, it will that is always true. work. That is true. And you turn it on at eight in the morning, and you have a hundred percent battery. And when you go to bed, it you have ninety nine percent battery. And not like a new smartphone that dies in a couple hours because you left something on. The newest shiniest things are are inefficient, and they have glitches, and they have bugs that you have to work on. Where so for me, I I made the choice to go Vexlar because when I'm on the lake, I don't want a distraction. I want a tool that I know is going to work. And you can still go for the high score on snake. <laughs> With the Nokia? <laughs> yes. I was really good at snake. <laughs> I, I could snake it up. Oh my God. I didn't have one of those phones. You didn't? Oh, well, you no. didn't have a pager either. Do you no, know what a Nokia is? I, I do know what a Nokia is. Okay, good. I remember I had the first phone with the, you could read the text message off the front of the screen and it was in oh. green. It wasn't in just like, it was, it had a light See, on the, it. My, the, my old Nokia didn't even open it was just always there they were what they call them the 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 brick i mean they were literally just a hunk of plastic and they worked great they never would break but that's the same thing with i guess the analog flashers they were they're kind of bulletproof they're kind of bulletproof as long as you don't drive over them i had a friend last year who was coming off a lake at the end of the summer or the end of the winter excuse me and the ice was bad and he went through and he was in 12 feet of water dropped his flx 28 in 12 feet of water, got out, went to shore, left, came back the next day with a ladder, climbed down the hole, <laughs> retrieved the XLX-28, and it still worked. Well, but that's something to be said for that. It I mean, spent the night in 12 feet of freezing water. Uh, we we do not recommend this, by the way, and don't don't try this at home, kids. Well, yeah, don't fall through the ice and don't drop your stuff but down the hole. I dropped my cell phone um, last year off the side of the boat and it fell in five feet of water and I spent about 20 minutes looking for it and scooped it up and it worked fine too. I mean, this, some of the technology is pretty impressive how waterproof stuff is. Yeah. So when you're trying to make the decision about how you want to spend your money for ice electronics, you you have to decide, do you want something that has um, less features and more reliability? Do you want one that has more cutting edge technology and potential issues and, and cost. Yeah. And a little bit of unknown territory. It's like driving a Tesla. What is it going to be like in 10 years? Yeah. One question I have too is, okay, this is all like super intriguing to me. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of a, a a gearhead and I love, I love tech, but like I'm there to fish. How much of it does it, does it become a distraction at some point where you're just more, dinking around with your electronics and you're not actually fishing. That's exactly why I don't like, that's exactly why I choose a Vexlar is because I want to fish. I've seen people dedicate a ton of time and effort trying to dial a machine in to get it to show what they want it to show. 
what I've been fishing for the whole time because I have two buttons to push. So it really is what you want. And I guess how much effort you're willing to put into figuring out how to make it work the way you want it to. It it's all comes down to that preparation. And the be- I mean, because a lot of these units, you can turn off the transducers. And I should warn people that if you leave your unit on with a transducer out of water, it can burn the transducer out very quickly. Yeah, it's shooting high-powered Yes, frequency. or it will melt the transducer on some units. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's preparation. I mean, you can you can flip it on, put it in, you know, take your transducer out or disconnect it on some units or just turn it off on other units, but then play with the settings because there are a lot of settings, and it's probably the worst place to do it when it's negative 10, you're catching fish, and you're trying to, you can't see your fish. Or the guy next to you has a machine that takes no effort, and he's catching fish, and you can't figure it out yet. You can't even see the bottom. Yeah, that's a bad feeling. To me, I see like this would be a lot of these like higher tech uh, equipment, like uh, Matt was saying last week, it's great for a guide who's trying to get people on the fish, but the people who are actually just trying to fish and they're just there to have fun and they don't really exactly understand all of it, they'd probably be better off with a basic unit or maybe even nothing with a guide telling them where to go. I would rather than going out and dropping fifteen hundred dollars on gear that they are never going to be able to figure out. I definitely wouldn't buy that as a first unit. If if you were starting out, I would start out pretty basic. That would be my recommendation. I. I'd, do think that there is a, a danger in this industry of pricing. The new, the new what FLX thirty is eight hundred dollars. Yeah, that's that, a lot of money for a flasher. It is a lot of money. A lot of money. I remember spending three hundred dollars on a FL eighteen way back in the day, and I thought that was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But stuff hasn't gotten that much more expensive, and realistically, that Vexlar FL eighteen or like a Markham. M5 is not that much different than the newest, latest, and greatest. No, it's not that much different, but if you know what you want and there's a reason for an upgrade, great. I had an FL-18, and it was a fine unit. It it was reliable and solid, and then I went out and spent $600 on an FLX-28, which does virtually the same thing, but it does it in a way that I wanted it to do, so I had a reason for that. Well, and also one thing that people should know, too, is the resale value of these are really good in the mm-hmm. beginning of the season. Yeah. I mean, if you really get something in your way over your head, you can probably get out of it for pretty close to what you paid for it because most of the supply is fairly limited to just one little, you know, a couple-month period where they have stuff in stock and retailers. Yeah. I know for me, to, to go back to your question, Tom, if I didn't have a some sort of ice electronics, I would not be interested in going ice fishing. It's they are have become that essential to me for fishing. I've it's really it bef- boring without one. I mean it's it like is. it's like watching TV with a black screen. Yeah. I, it's it, just I've had it before where I've been on the ice and my battery's gone dead and I that's the end of the day for me. I go home. I had it happen once and batteries went dead, flashes went dead. We're all just sitting there in the dark, still catching fish. And I'm like, this is this boring. is terrible. I hate it. And, you know, having the more technology, you know, going up to one of those more advanced units, he, even a flasher, it can, it can take the edge off of not catching fish because it's still, you're still basically playing a video game against yourself. You're watching, you're, you're watching your movements, you're seeing what you're doing. And it's enough to really, you know, hold your interest at, at times when it's, when it's a lull. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 
and for me, I, I, there's also one other thing we should probably talk about is cameras too. Oh yeah. Um, cameras. Because cameras are one of those things that I got my first camera last or three years ago. Mm-hmm. I got a recon five. And That's what I have to. I thought it was like, well, this is, you know, this is cool. And I, I used it with my kid and my kid loved it. He thought, you know, he thought there was a shark in the water. Cause the first thing they do, you get, we had a big bass that knows the camera. Yep. Thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Well, realizing that a camera is the only tool that I use for fishing weed fish now, and I don't use it for watching the fish. I watch it for finding the pockets of weeds. Sure. I really struggle reading a graph to the point where I can see where the weed edge drops off Mm -hmm. and where a transition line goes, whereas a camera, I can literally just drop it, spin it around, and see. It's a real visual thing. Yeah, cameras have their place. Uh, for me, I have my camera is not a is not a daily driver. I pull it out when I'm in a place that I don't know what I'm doing or where I don't know what's below me, and I want a visually quick check. I have it when my kids with me because it's entertaining. Yeah, well, it's it's like watching TV. I use it in my boat when I'm out driving around. If I if I want to go over a weed edge and see where the weed edge is or where the rock pile is, um, but I don't. It's not an everyday thing for me. The the recon cameras are really portable, but they also are not very stable. So when they're No, hanging, it's, it's, it's what I, because that camera module is very so small. tiny and light that it's really hard to adjust the, the view so that you see anything that's worthwhile once you're si- sitting still. It's very hard to get your jig in view and keep it there. The bigger cameras, you know, the larger units. Because I have a, I have a mission camera now from Markham and, yeah. The camera's awesome. They're amazing. They... What I do, um, especially if I set up a hub, which is the kind of pop-up tent style house. We'll get into shelters another episode. I, I set it up on the outside of the house. I pick a corner, mm-hmm. usually the, the least windy side. Yeah. Um, set it up, put it on a, a, a panner. Yep. And I have a wireless remote now yeah. because I the other one fell in the lake. Um, <laughs> every, everyone should know that an ice, you'll drill... You know, if you look at it for square inches of an ice house, everything falls down the hole no matter where you drop it. Yep. They're giant funnels. Just just a recommendation. Two, I know two cell phones of mine are sitting at the same spot at the bottom of the lake. I have lots of stuff in Leech Lake. Yeah. Um, I have a buddy who loses a bottle of cologne every ice fishing trip. Cologne? Cologne. Why would you bring cologne <laughs> to an ice fishing trip? There's a bunch of dudes in the fish house. He's got to get his cologne on. He's got to get his cologne on. That's that it. is very weird. Not yeah. going fishing with that guy. <laughs> well, our brother dropped a, a, a gun, a loaded gun down the ice hole last year. Yep. So weird things go down the ice hole. Undisclosed location. I, he still wants to die for it. Yeah. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's a rusty mess by now. My okay. brother-in-law dropped a Leatherman down the hole, and it was the funniest thing because it literally it dropped on the side of it was one of the Leech Lake or uh, Lake of the Woods shacks, and it dropped like in the middle of the floor and bounced right down the hole. Yeah, I'm just, like how the nine million times it would have bounced somewhere else. But if you were in the kitchen and you drilled a hole in the in the floor and bounced it, it would never go down. Never, it would never go down. It would go never bounce ice. like that. That's where it's going. Everything just falls down those holes. Yeah. Can I get your guys' take on one more thing here real quick? Yeah, of course. Okay, so I've been involved in numerous discussions throughout the year in the use of electronics or cameras and stuff like that on, like, the ethical implications of using that kind of stuff. Uh, Does it take a – does it – I kind of feel like I know where you guys fall on this, and I I definitely have a certain opinion on it, but do you feel like it's giving you an unfair advantage when you're fishing? And I I even know that there's some, like – 
some laws and some spots where you can't use a camera when you're fishing or you can't do this or you can't do that? So I think that the there are there are things that you can put down your hole that do give you an unfair advantage, like a light, like an attractant that brings fish to you. That, I think, has a, a, a sticky implication. I think of electronics as giving you an idea of what is in a spot that you've already chosen. I don't think that is per- personally unethical. Because um, they still don't. It's not... You're not catching them. It's not called catching for yeah. a reason. It's still fishing. I mean, you could be, I've fished where, you know, you, you literally, like, you know there's fish there. You can see them. You drop down the camera, they're still sitting there, and you cannot get them to turn. Mm-hmm. I think the electronics make you more efficient in a spot that you've chosen if, if you know, if you do it right. You, yeah. you can definitely fail with electronics. I've seen people sitting in the same house with me. With this, you know, the same pile of fish underneath them, not catch any fish, and there's not usually why, a really good reason. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> I don't know. I, I wasn't going to say anything, but um, but then there's also sometimes where it's just it's almost like you don't even need a flash if the fish are biting that good. But it, it's hard to find where your jig is. I mean, I guess I would say, is it unethical to put a scope on a gun when you're hunting? Some, I, some I, peers would say yes. Some peers would say no. I personally agree with John. You have your equipment, and it's not going to make the fish bite. It's going to sh- maybe show you where they are and give you an idea of where to go. But if they're not hungry, they're not hungry. I mean, there's there's limits and caps to everything. That's that's why they're there. I don't think it's I mean, a scope on a rifle. I think that's actually more ethical. I've seen the way people shoot with iron sights. I worked at a gun range for almost 10 years. I would why pref- are you looking at me? <laughs> I, I would prefer to have people use scopes that were sighted in. There... I do think, though, Tom, to to you know play devil's advocate or play the other side of the fence, fish are being caught a lot more than they used to be caught. And I think that people are better anglers than they ever have been because of the tools that are available and because of the interest in it and the sheer volume of people who are ice fishing. I mean, five years ago, the number of people on a lake is not anywhere near what it is today. When I was a kid, we fished on Pelican up in Breezy Point, mm-hmm. and we fished on one particular point. There was rarely ever a, other holes drilled on that point, mm-hmm. let alone people fishing, let alone a truck driving out there. Now it's like a highway. Yeah. I mean, it it is, the sport has exploded. Because I think, I mean, for me, I don't do anything in the winter other than ice fish or sit around my house and watch TV. There's not, it's like I can go cut my grass. It's People want to be outside. And if we have the ability to get outside and be comfortable and be safe and be active and it's something that's enjoyable, then people are going to do it. And that's what all of the new technologies have given people the ability to do during ice fishing. And put some dinner on the table as well. Sure. Not 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 for you, Dan, because no, you don't like fish. fish gross. But, but but you know, I think that it goes more towards the idea of what is ethical or what is not. You know, the, there is kind of a uh, a bucket fever at times where I don't like to eat fish, but I sure like putting fish on the ice because there's something very satisfying about looking at a pile of fish. It, it probably goes to like a. a like a primal state. Yeah, like yeah. I mean, it, it probably goes way beyond what our it's. It goes back to like I'm getting I'm food. providing. I'm providing. Yeah. Like it, I, it's I've a got, man thing. I've gotten several late night texts from Dan saying, "Hey, do you want to limit a crappie?" 
I'm like, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'll take them. Yeah. And it's like, I'm not going to keep these or unless someone wants them, I'll keep them. But I don't, I, I, Matt talked about this last week and I think that there's a really fair idea argument about, um, about limiting, uh, slot or not slots, uh, um, well, like having a, a, a stronger limit than what we yeah. already have. We still have a pretty, I mean, not compared to other states, but I think we have so many lakes and so many resources. Having size limits and stuff like that would be important to kind of help the fishery out. And people who fish in people who fish specific lakes long enough can can see a lake get decimated. I, I watched my my parents live on a lake up up north, and we've watched the crappies be decimated mm-hmm. by basically ice fishermen and springtime harvest during the spawn. And not ever, that I don't, I mean, I, I agree. Like it's, you know, you can catch a lot of fish that way, but every crappie you catch on that lake in the wintertime is dead. It comes yeah. out of 35 to 32 feet of water and you bring them up and pe- most people don't whine, you know, they just, Oh sweet. Got a fish. They whine like crazy and it comes up and the eyeballs pop out of its head and it, it it's dead. And if, if you go and you catch your limit every single time you fish and you eat your limit every single time you fish, that's your right. You bought a license. You, you can do that. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to have an effect on the lake. Yes. I mean, Especially if you're taking the larger bluegills, mm-hmm. which are usually, you know, the, the bull-type bluegills, which are the ones that are important, and or the big crappies, which are the big females, which are equally as important to keep the whole balance of the ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that that argument is one that's fair to make, and I think that whenever people talk about that, the emotion and passion becomes to the surface. And recognizing that people do have the right to catch the fish that they're legally allowed to catch, but if people take advantage of it or if people go above their limits, that's a problem. Yes, and perhaps the discussion has to be: Do the laws need a change to? reduce the legal harvest i don't know i don't care fish are gross and i i I also i think just just from casual observation i think people especially in this state are usually very fair and if they see people going over their limit they're going to report it yeah i agree the the most fishermen have zero tolerance for people who take advantage or who people who uh you know over over harvest well it's it, it ruins the ecosystem it ruins it for everybody yeah this has been an interesting episode. We've gone a lot of different places. We started with pheasant hunting. <laughs> we went down the down the rabbit hole with uh, with ice electronics, and I, it was good time to have you you'd be able to kind of pick pick the, our brains. I suppose we're you know I wouldn't say that I'm an expert. Well, I'm I'm not either. I've, I've been you know I started off with Bexars. I moved to Markhams. Mm-hmm. I tried hummingbirds last year for a little bit. I'll be back to my LX7, my tried and true this year. Yeah. Um, but you and I probably know more than a lot of people. I mean, I ice fish a lot, and you ice yeah. fish a lot. And I'm glad that if we can try to help break that down, that's good. And if it helps people make a, make a decision that's going to work best for them. Awesome. And if the viewers have any questions about things for us, I mean, like us on uh, Instagram or Facebook, Facebook. Shoot us a message. I mean, the Iceman. We will, yeah. we will get back to you as soon as we possibly yeah, can. Yeah, I'd love to have a dialogue with people online. And I definitely want to see this community be active. Yeah, because there's a lot of different, you know, a lot of different discussions. And it, it's always kind of a hot topic every year, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of The Iceman. 
We look forward to hearing from you on the socials like John mentioned. Go ahead and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And our podcast is available anywhere that podcasts can be found. And we look forward to seeing you back on our next episode. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.